Uh, Father God, we, um, we do just want to commit this morning to you that with all the different things going on around us, that we would not lose sight of you, who is the greatest and the center focal point for all that we do and, and all that uh, we should desire. And so I just pray that you'd still us now, still our hearts, and allow us to just focus on you and to have the, the desire deep within us, the desire to be in relationship with you, that that desire would grow and that you would just work on our hearts now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, the house lights are up, so I think you can turn to that. And on the back of the notes page, it's a big chunk of Scripture, so we printed it on the back of the notes page, notes page so that you could read along if you'd like. And we're in 1 Peter, and we're going to go all the way from verse 17 down through 25. And if you remember two weeks ago, uh, we kind of started this with the first half of a paragraph, and we talked about what it means to be a stranger, what it means to be a stranger. And we're going to kind of continue along that theme this morning. I'll go ahead and begin reading, starting in verse 17 of 1 Peter. It says this, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So if you remember, the the dominant thought here is that we wouldn't look horizontally, the the horizontal stuff, the stuff of this life, the, the getting by and the relationships and the difficulties and the struggles and the trials, that 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 horizontal stuff, what it means to kind of walk through life and it dominates our thinking that we would look beyond the horizontal stuff and we would look to God and recognize He's bigger than our problems, He's more important than the things that we value on this level, and that it it begins there. And us trusting God that He's going to take care of us. And so we live our lives in reverent fear. It says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are ultimately in God. And so now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, So that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. Um, That's a mouthful. And I think all of 1 Peter is like that. You could take every little chunk and just really dissect it and chew on it, meditate on it, reflect on it. And that one right there, that, that chunk we just read really encompasses the whole story of the Bible. I mean, the whole story of the Bible is wrapped up just in like a paragraph and a half. And so I started thinking, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we like stretched this paragraph out for like 10 weeks? <laughs> Which sounded cool for a while, and then I thought, you know what? Um, maybe someone would send me hate mail or something. Um, so we're not going to do that. And I was like, well, maybe we'll stretch it out a couple weeks. And, and I was thinking, well, that would be cool. And then uh, this morning I almost called Kip and Kim's dad and said, can you preach for me because I don't feel too good. And so 10 weeks has gone down to two weeks, it's gone down to one week, and so we're just going to knock it out this week. So um, there you go. And here's what I want to do. I want to just point out three things that make up the nature 
of the gospel. This message, this good news. Three things that, that make that up. And then we're going to point out three reasons why I think we sometimes struggle to accept this. Three barriers, three problems, three issues, three hurdles, whatever it is. And so let's just start. And the first one I want to just say is this gospel, this message is an individual thing. It's individual. It says uh, you were ransomed, you were redeemed from the life you used to live into a different one. You were redeemed. And if we go down further, it says you have been born again. Now, twins or quintuplets, I mean, sometimes like multiple people are born at once, right? But the whole idea of born again, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus um, in chapter 3 of John, the whole idea is you specifically, who were born once into kind of the natural world, you're going to be born again. You. And so it's radically specific to the individuals that are hearing this. Now, why is that important? Because, I mean, Americans, we think everything revolves around us anyway, so that doesn't sound like a big deal. Well, to the Jewish mind, uh, that's a big deal because in the Old Testament, God really talks a lot about the whole community. The whole community of people that he has a covenant with and, and its language of you people. And, of course, there's times where God deals with individuals, but you see this real corporate nature. And you together, all of you, come to the temple where I dwell and you're going to be able to commune with me. And and here's what all of you are supposed to do at set times and seasons and things like this. But now that Jesus has come and died, every individual person has the ability to have a unique relationship with God. And so you see this language come about and it's talking about radical individual, you having a direct relationship with God. The book of Hebrews goes on and on and on and says there used to be high priests and you'd go to the high priest and the community would be in front of the high priest and they kind of acted as a mediator between the people of God and God. And now now the, the writer to Hebrews says Jesus is that high priest. That you, anywhere you're at, on the hilltop, laying in bed, driving in your car, sitting here this morning, wherever you're at, you can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, your high priest. He's that mediator. He's your pastor. And so it's it's unique because in the Jewish mind, it, it was very corporate. And now it's coming down to you specifically are having to make some kind of decision as to where you stand with God. And that was always there, but it's really drawn out here, and we need to notice that. Um, And we'll see why a little bit later when we're talking about the barriers. But it's individual to you. Second thing is it's sufficient. It says this, that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and he was chosen before the creation of the world. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Now, there's a for thousands of years, the debates have gone on about... um, predestination and, and uh, all sorts of things, like how much happened before time and how much happens in time. And, and I'm just going to not even talk about that because it's not interesting to me right now. Um, what's interesting to me is this. God had a plan. God had a plan. Now, why does that matter? Because we're in a messed up world and there's a real big problem going on in this world. And God 
is not reacting and struggling or striving to fix it. It's not something that caught God off guard and so now he's like throwing all his resources and energies at it. I hope this will fix it. Let me throw another band-aid over here. Let me get involved at this level and, and maybe that'll like make it go away. I don't know what to do. This caught me by surprise. And that's not our God. Our God knew from the beginning that in this story where he was going to allow things to get out of control, he was also going to bring the solution that was going to bring it back into control. He was going to create the lock and he always had the key. God is not taking a, a screwdriver and like jamming it into the lock and saying, I think I can muscle it through. He's saying, I've got the solution. I've got the key. Now that's really encouraging if you've ever dealt with a difficulty. And if you've been a parent, you know that when you go to a, a playground, there's two types of control. There's, there's the type of control where you have a kid over your shoulder and you're like walking away with them and you're manhandling it or woman handling it. I don't know. That, anyways. Um, and then there's a the type of control where you're watching something happen and there's kids that are kind of fighting with each other or someone's kind of in a dangerous situation and it's a little bit out of control, but you see it, you know what's going on and you're allowing it. So in some sense, it's still under your control, but it's a passive control rather than an active control. Does that make sense? God's sovereignty works the same way. God actively controls things, puts his hand on it and manipulates stuff. But he also stands back sometimes and allows difficult things to happen to good people. He allows things to get messy. And he's watching it and he's standing there like a dad at a playground and at any time, if he really wanted to, he could intervene. But he's allowing it to go. And it's under his control. And the things going on in this world are under God's sovereign control. And at the right time, he stepped in and said, you know what, enough. Here's the answer. Here's the key. And once and for all, I'm going to act decisively and sufficiently so that the real issue is going to be resolved. And the real issue is one of eternal consequences. It's where do you stand with God? Where are you going to go when you die? What, what is going on in your heart that is so hard to control? Those, that's the real issue. So the first thing, it's, it has to do with you and your heart. The second thing, what God does with Jesus is sufficient. God's in control. You don't have to do like the Israelites did where God was sufficient to get them out of Egypt and then as they're kind of moving along, um, Moses goes on the mountain, gets lost for 40 days. They don't know what's going on. And they remember, they take all the gold and they melt it down and they make the golden calf. Well, here's the interesting thing. They didn't stop believing that God existed. They started thinking that God was not sufficient. So they had to go find God got us out of Egypt, but we have to go find some other God and worship some other God because we're in a new jam here and that guy's not helping us. We need something else to add to it. God's not sufficient. Now, that's how we live, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I kind of do. Um, when things are going well or when I'm reading my Bible or when I'm praying and, and, like, um, and it's like yay God time, like everything's coming together. It's really easy for me to say, God's sufficient. He's all I need. 
Um, but on the back end of two years or three years of dealing with certain things that, that I wanted to go away right away, and now it's like two years in, three years in, what do, you, what do we begin to do then? When it's hard to wait, we begin to question whether God is sufficient to handle all of our problems, and mainly the ones right now where it doesn't seem like anything's going on. There's no resolution. And so we begin to look for other ways out, other golden calves, other things that we can kind of bow down to that might fix or resolve. And here's the thing. Since the beginning of the world, Jesus was chosen. And he was chosen to come and give sacrifice for you. And it's sufficient. He's the key to the lock. God's not scrambling. God's not lost. God's not overwhelmed. God is sovereign. Third thing, it's costly. The salvation that we have is costly. The, the Greek word for redeemed here is really the word for ransom. It's, it's a slave bought out of slavery, purchased out of slavery with money. And so if you, if you go back up there, I think it's verse 18... You are bought out, you're ransomed out, a price has been paid so that you who were under slavery are now liberated and set free. It's costly. And so we begin to think, well, how did my salvation come? Yeah, it was costly, but where did the cost come from? Maybe it came with silver or gold. If you go back to Exodus um, chapter 30 in verse 11, I'll read a little bit of it. The Israelites are with Moses. And they're going to take a census. And census is not a good thing because it's like, how big are we? How strong are we? Can we, in and of ourselves, our own numbers, defeat other armies? Okay, that's, that's the whole idea behind a census. And God's saying, don't do census things because I'm the one you're relying on. I'm your strength. But God wants him to take a census. But he's also going to use it as an object lesson. We're going to have you take a census, but then you've got to give me money to kind of pay for the fact that that's not okay. You've got to atone for the guilt of this action with silver and gold. And so they had to give the shekels and they had to, to give the money and they had to make atonement to God to get right with God again. Okay, does that make sense? Peter is an Israelite and he knows the stories of the Old Testament. And he's saying, you know what? You and your salvation and being ransomed isn't one of these situations where you use your silver or gold and you give it to God and now God owes it to you, where where you did it yourself. It's not by your works. It's not by going to church. It's not by um, the religious things we do. It's not by our actions. We don't earn it. It's not our silver and gold. God saves us. He does it. We're in slavery. He ransoms us out. And there's a cost associated with it. Well, what's the cost? If it's not our silver and gold, if it's not monetary things, if it's not about the horizontal things, where's the cost come from? And it's the blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus died for our sins. He gave his life. There's the cost. That This plan that God had had since the beginning of the world that he put into place was costly. It's costly. It's about you. It's enough. And it cost a whole heck of a lot. 
So why can't we accept this message, this idea, this good news, the gospel, this Christian story? Why do we balk at it? Because we do. I mean, do you guys know that? I mean, have you looked around lately? I balk at it. Watched the movie last night that my friend Gary recommended to me. And it made me depressed when I went to bed because half of it I agreed with. But it was, a, it was a whole parody on Christianity and it was called Saved. And it was a high, Christian high school. And, and half of the things they were making jokes out of or making fun of, like, I kind of, you know, I kind of jived with. And so I went to bed frustrated because I balk at a lot of this stuff too. I mean, I think if we're honest, we realize that we do. And why do we balk at it? We balk at it in a couple different ways. One, because we're a herd creature. We go with the crowd. We're a herd creature. We're a sheep. And no matter how strong you think you are, we are so swayed and influenced by crowds and by peer pressure and by others. And it's safe to stay back in the crowd rather than to move forward and have an individual relationship with God. It's safe. It doesn't get messy. It doesn't get sticky. You don't stand out. You don't have to really wrestle through some of the big questions. You get just close enough that you're kind of in the crowd and it's safe. It's interesting in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, Aslan, always comes up on people and they ask him, um, are, you, are you safe? And the answer is always No but I'm good. (laughs) There's a book written about the Chronicles of Narnia that's called, the title is, Not a Tame Lion. And Jesus and God, when they they call us forward, it's not safe. Um, It's a pretty scary thing, and they're going to require a lot of us. It's not safe at all, but it's good. And I think we recognize, man, this is hardcore and it's going to mean a lot of changes in my life and I don't know if I'm quite ready. I don't know if I'm comfortable. I don't want to look weird. I don't want to be one of those people, whatever. So I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to kind of do some Bible studies. I'm going to hang out in the crowd. And that'll be cool. That'll be enough. And we miss the fact that this is the first thing, remember, was it's about you as an individual. It's about your heart. When you get to heaven and you talk to God, you're not going to be able to say, I was, I was a part of a pretty cool church. It has nothing to do with you. Now, if you said, I was a part of a cool church, and God, I loved you, and I, it was great to be able to love you through that church, and I got involved and was able to like love people through that church because I here was overwhelmed with what you had done for me, then, then church like is relevant in some kind of a context. But if you just say, yeah, I had a buddy, man, and his Bible was like 50 pounds. And he wore more Christian jewelry than anyone. And, and like he loved DC Talk, even today. Kip. Um, and, and it's like, you know, and I was his friend, God. We hide. We hide in the crowd. And there was always different categories of people that followed Jesus, wasn't there? There's the people that followed him closely and were really into it and they were com- completely all in. Like, I- I've been watching, I get bored lately at, at night and I don't want to go to bed, so I've been watching the ESPN, like, um, World Championship Poker tournaments they do in Vegas. Anyone else watch those? It's, I get addicted to that. And, and uh, you live for that all-in moment where somebody gets dealt some cards and they're just like, I'm all in. 
And they believe they've got a winning hand enough that they're willing to leverage everything on that. Everything. There was always the people that looked at Jesus and said, that's a winning bet. And they took it all and they leveraged it all and they were all in. All in. And hold nothing back. I mean, it's all riding on Jesus. And there was those people. Then there were the people that are like, I'm hedging my bets. If Jesus doesn't pan out, I got to still have something in reserve. And they'd kind of be these people that would just get lost in the crowd, right? I'm, I'm in the crowd that's good enough. And then there were the people that were just completely ambivalent. I, what does it matter? I don't really care. I mean, I got other things to do, um, like play poker or whatever, you know. Um, and then there were the people that were actually hostile. And there was always those four categories. And what the gospel is, is it's a message to all of us. That there's only one category we're supposed to be in. The message is about you and your heart believing that what God did in Jesus Christ is sufficient and that it was costly and deserving of your attention and your life. So we get tripped up on this whole herd thing. Here's the one that really gets me, um, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, We think it's cheap. We think the gospel is cheap. We treat it like cheap stuff. And here's uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I remember when I first read this thing, and it, it was just unbelievable to me because it put into words so many of the feelings I'd had. And Bonhoeffer starts his book, and it's, the chapter's called Costly Grace. And listen to what he says. He, he begins, he says, Cheap grace is the deadly em- enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. And cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wear. He goes on to say this, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, and communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is... um, Please, oh please, just buy this. Just take it. You need it. It's like your mom when you're in junior high and you're running out the door and she's like, oh, you forgot this. Please just take it. And you're like, I don't need it. Just take it anyways. It'll help you. I'm your mom. Um, And so here's this one. The first one uh, was the herd thing. I would call this cheap grace problem. I would call it listening to the handlers of Jesus rather than listening to Jesus himself. Because this is my testimony. I remember going to Clemson University and wandering downtown um, to where the bars are. It was cool at Clemson because you could just walk there. And you're walking downtown, and Thursday night through Sunday night, you just, that's what you did. You, You didn't do homework. You went downtown. And I remember these Christians that were standing on a street corner one time and they were preaching at me about, you know, um, what you're doing is sin going downtown and you're doing all this other stuff and you need to get your life straight and you need to turn it all around. And I remember getting so mad at them, not because I didn't believe in God, but because they were given the wrong message. The message they should have been given was, all you got to do is pray this prayer, like just recite this little prayer and then it's like the thing your mom throws on with you. You take that with you and that's all you need and all your sins are forgiven. That's what it means to believe in God. 
So shut up with all this other stuff and, and let's get on with drinking. You got the wrong message. Because I grew up and all I heard at every Christian camp and from every youth pastor that, that I ran into was this. Just repeat after me. Just repeat these words after me. Jesus, um, I believe in you and I want you to save my life and I believe that all my sins are forgiven. And then the preacher would say, now fill out the little card because I got to tally up how many of you made this decision so I can go take it to my handlers and justify to them that they need to keep giving me money um, because this whole thing is working. We're selling Christ and people are buying it. It's cheap jacks wear. And so we peddle Christ the way, have you, have you ever stood in line and had people come by asking you to sign a petition? I'm sorry if you've ever, like, had to go get a petition. But, I mean, when people come by and you're standing in line somewhere and they want you to sign a petition, I mean, we all know what's, what, what you do. It's like, if I sign this, will you go away? <laughs> right? Maybe you really believe in the cause, you're, you know, but it's like, I don't want you here. And if I just put my name here, that means this is over. Great. And then I can feel good about myself going home today. I did something good. Sure. And we do that with Jesus. We say, just listen to a sermon. And then whatever you do, just come forward at the end of the sermon. Pray this prayer. And that's it. And all your sins are forgiven. And that's cheap grace. It's taking a big red marker and putting X's through all the cost. And saying, all you got to do is just add this on to your life. Just let it have one little piece of your life. It's, it's not going to, you don't have to change anything. Just say that you added this on. And it's cheap grace. And it's not real. Bonhoeffer. It was actually worth it for me to have that go out. <laughs> um, all right, now listen to this. Okay, and this ain't no joke. Um, I got 40 copies of this chapter that I printed out, and I want 40 of you to come get this and have your life changed. Um, it's the first chapter of Von Hoffer's book. We also got a bunch of copies to put in the book table on your way out. I called a publishing friend of mine, by the way, because I'm trying to be mildly more ethical. Um, and uh, I actually called a friend that's, that's a publisher and said, if I copy you know, and distribute, is that wrong? And he said, he goes, you know, it depends on your intent. If you're distributing so that they'll go buy the book, go ahead and do it. If you're distributing it so that they don't have to buy the book, um, then, then don't do that. And so go buy the book. <laughs> and, um, and I'm ethical um but listen to this okay i'm serious we're, we're in america and, I, and whether you know it or not i know you i know you've run into this this is christianity in america and it is a struggle between cheap grace and costly grace so hear this right here 
This is what Bonhoeffer says about costly grace. He just switches and now he says this. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. And it is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Jesus says this, He who seeks to find his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The call I'm calling you to is of the utmost value, and I don't want you. If you're willing to pay anything less than your full measure of your life, I don't want you. There's no red lines in this price tag. There's no easy way to just slap me on and then continue on as as if you have not been affected. My grace, the one I died for, radically transforms you to the degree that you are born again. Your heart has different desires. Your goal is a different goal. The purpose for which you live is a different purpose. And you are a stranger in and among the people of this world. Period. You got to be all in or we're not even going to talk. And the grace part is it's a good bet. You got to be all in or we're not even going to talk. And what, what is so hard for me is that what we've done to Jesus, here's the interesting thing about the Christian story, is, is the central thing stays the same for 2,000 years. It's Jesus. Now that's really hard because everything passes out of style. Everything. Politicians that are popular, Bill Clinton, ridiculously popular. By the time Al Gore was running, they were like trying to hide Bill Clinton. Because we we were ready for change. And clothing styles go out of style. And songs, I heard George Michael's, um, what was that, Kim? Help me out. I don't know. I heard a George Michael song on the radio, the father figure. <laughs> and I was just like, man, this sounds so crazy old, right? Um, there's other funny things. But the uh, things pass out of style. I heard a statistic this week that eight, by the time you're 18, you'll know the words to over 3,000 songs. You will be able to sing entirely 3,000 different songs by the time you're 18. You don't know it. Until all of a sudden you hear like a little bit of music and you're just like, you know. Um, My roommate, freshman year of college, was that guy that had to sing all 3,000 of those songs. As soon as he heard like, have you ever had a friend like that? Um, But things pass out of style, but Jesus remains the same. So here's the interesting thing is the language we use to try and effectively communicate the value and the worth of Jesus Christ in one generation are the words that the next generation is tired of. 
And so you go back and we're always shifting how we describe this thing. Byzantine art, it's Jesus with the halo and doing something like this with his fingers, you know. And maybe that's, I don't know where they got. Um, Byzantine art. And then, I mean, just in the last hundred years, it was um, accept Jesus into your heart. And then the 80s, the be born again Christian came back again. And then by the 90s, born again, born again was cliche. So you had to... Um, become a, uh, what was 90s? Like, uh, decide to follow Christ. You know, you have to make a decision for Christ. That's what it was. If Make a decision for Christ. And then like in 2000, it was like, Jesus is my homeboy. And, um, and cool t-shirts that went with it. And then this year, and Shane Claiborne's new book, it's Jesus for President, you know, which by like, Eight months from now will be cliche. And so we're always running into a culture and even our own like people that are like, man, it just is bad marketing. It just turns me off. It's weird language. And, and how can I identify with that? And so we act like people that have been raised with Jesus. And it's like, I don't want to be associated with my kid brother. He's lame. He's going to make me look silly. We don't come to Christ like people who are in a pit, hopelessly lost and saying, finally, my prayers have been answered. God has sent somebody to deliver me and it's sufficient. And he's looking me dead in the eyes and we're just overjoyed. We treat it like people that have been around it. And anything that's valuable that you touch long enough becomes what? Becomes common. And we treat Jesus like the kid brother. What's funny is if you look at how we're always trying to repackage Jesus, you'd think we'd saved Jesus more times than he's saved us. We're always trying to rescue him. I've got to rescue you, Jesus, from the people of the generation before that made you seem uncool. And it gets tiring after a while. And so we want to get away from Jesus is kind of, I think, the temptation of the people that don't really get it. It was the temptation of me when I didn't really get it. How can I find God and have it be cool to where people are looking at me and think, wow, he's cool. (laughs) How do I not associate myself with Jesus and get all the baggage of what a Christian bookstore feels like? You know, I mean, that feel. (laughs) And so you'd think we'd save Jesus more times than he saved us, and that's not the case. And it's a symptom of treating Jesus as if he's cheap and what he did for us and what he is doing for us as if it doesn't cost and it's only a tangential thing to our life. If we're selling everything and going all in and putting it all on Jesus, we're going to value him because it's got added value, man. We put everything on it, and we don't care how uncool anyone thinks it looks. And we're not even thinking about it from a marketing standpoint or an image standpoint. We're thinking about it from a, I am completely dependent upon and have placed myself on you standpoint. Cheap grace versus costly grace is the war that we're living in. Peter says this, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now a seed is something small that begins to grow. Now we can do things that affect change, but do you know what? Like 
things that actually live on their own and grow outside of like um, those little charcoal things on, on 4th of July. You know, you light them and they kind of, outside of those things, we can't create things that innately like grow. And this seed that is the gospel, that is the message, is not this thing that gets planted in and it grows this wonderful cheerio life. It's an imperishable thing. It's not natural. It's not temporal. It's imperishable and it's eternal. And it's a little seed that gets planted in you and it begins to grow and you are born again. And this whole dimension is brought to you. You're living an eternal life. Turn real quick to John Chapter 17, Gospel of John, chapter 17, towards the end of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the thing we got to get straight about heaven and the afterlife. Heaven and the afterlife are not a then and there kind of a thing. John 17, verse 3, says this, Now this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's knowing God, knowing Jesus, and having that little seed planted there, and that's eternal life. And it doesn't begin when you die, it begins when? It begins when that seed is planted there. If you've got that seed, if, if you believe and you go all in, you get a seed. If you don't have a seed, then what? You don't believe. If you believe this morning, you have already inherited eternal life. You're living an eternal life right now. Right now. Everything you do like echoes throughout eternity. Gladiator quote. Just because. Is that big? It's not cheesy born again language at all. It's like, It's something we can't even grasp. And maybe that's why it takes us to bottom out sometimes before we come around to really realizing how big it is. Maybe it takes the cancer. Maybe it takes the other. Maybe it takes going bankrupt. Maybe it takes the bottom out experience for us to get detached enough from the horizontal stuff to really step back and go, whoa, um, it really is about you, God. And that really is what I'm hungering for too. I wasn't really hungering for the third or fourth house. I was hungering for you all along. Maybe that's why it takes a bottoming out because it really is so radical that I think sometimes we just never engage it like significantly enough. So we, we treat it as being cheap and we listen to the handlers of Christ, stupid pastors. And if I'm ever not preaching what this book says, then I'm a stupid pastor. And it's only out for myself. And if we listen to people that try and cheapen grace, we're listening to the handlers. We're not listening to what Jesus himself said. And Jesus warned against that. False teachers and Pharisees. And so let's not listen to the handlers. Let's not be a herd creature. Let's think for ourselves and actually follow Christ. Lastly, we minimize the need. We minimize the need. We are ransomed out. Not with silver or gold, 
And it's from this horizontal, empty way of living into this other way of living, born-again living, and we're ransomed out by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the key that God always intended to use to fix this, fix this situation. But guess what? We don't think the situation really is that big. Not big enough to tie ourselves up with something silly like Christianity where people are going to think we're weird. Or where I actually got to take all the things I really value, like my time, my energy, my dreams, my money, and put it all in and give it on Christ. Like, it's the, the need that I've got for Christ fits cheap grace. Cheap, I can just add it. But, but it's not strong enough for me to do something stupid like go all in. And so it's like the person that, that won't go by Preparation H because it's like, you know, I'd live with this circumstance more than I'm going to get caught with the remedy. I'm so afraid of being seen with the remedy or being identified with that that I'll live with whatever the need is. That's what we do with Christianity. Yeah, I've got a need, but you know what? It's not that big. Not big enough for me to do something foolish. I'll just hang out with the crowd. So we minimize the need. It's interesting, the passage i always go back to in my mind is the israelites in the desert had this this situation come up and it's so analogous and god always worked these metaphors and all these snakes started coming around the people and biting them and they were dying and he told moses take an erect on this pole like a snake you know and i, I don't know but i actually think the medical association where it's got the pole snake i think that's where that came from i'm not sure but but uh, go erect this pole. Now, the people that really are, are believe in me enough to do the counterintuitive thing and not deal with the snake right in front of them, but look at the pole, they're not going to get bit. The person who thinks the circumstances are so big and that they have to deal with that and that I'm not big enough to, to handle it and they don't look at the pole, they're the ones that are going to get bit by the snake. It's so counterintuitive. It's an upside-down kingdom. And you're taking everything and giving it away. Why? So that you can have everything back. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. If you try and deal with this here yourself, you will lose it. You believe the message that God gives us, the word that he's given us, that Jesus really is the answer. Bank on him completely. Bank on him fully. I don't care how much it costs. It's the grace you need. Look there and guess what? You'll be okay. I'll take care of you. We got to recognize the need. It's a dire situation. We got to recognize the solution. It's costly grace. And we've got to recognize that we ourselves have to accept that seed that will get planted in our hearts when we believe that it's not a herd thing. Now look at where Peter takes us, and, and we'll say this in conclusion. He quotes Isaiah here at the end. Why does he do that? Listen to how he quotes Isaiah. We'll just pick it up in verse 23. For you have been born again, not through perishable seed, not the stuff that has to do with this life, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, for all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And then he comes back, he's done quoting Isaiah, and this is the word that was preached to you. I don't know about you, but um, 
I've been looking in the mirror and there's a lot more wrinkles lately and I'm beginning to go, okay, I get it, life goes fast. And finances, I don't care how much you study money, it's like, sometimes it's like grasping water, isn't it? No matter how much you know about the stock market, there's still like chance. And life goes fast and life is uncertain and the need is huge. It's not just a tip on the stock market. It's being rescued and ransomed out of this whole lot. And then we're going we're gonna to hang around for a while more and act like a stranger. And so Peter quotes Isaiah to say, look, get it right. It's this simple. Let me just package it for you. This is perishable. Just like the flowers that you see, it's going to be here, it's going to go away, and that's it. But what God does with his message to you, his word, that is rock solid. That stands forever. That has this eternal component. You latch onto that. And then he comes back and says, and that was the word that was preached to you, the message about Jesus Christ, the key that is sent to fit that lock. It is sufficient. It costs all, but it's grace, and it saves. And you grab onto that that you might live. It's the gospel message. And it's not about just praying a prayer or coming down front. It's about you making a decision at the core of who you are in your heart to move out of the herd and go right before God and say, I'm all in. Whoa, God, that's a little scary. And now I'm really banking on you. Because if you don't deliver, I'm out everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you wouldn't have to break us before we realize that what we really need is you. I pray that you would give us the faith to be able to grab hold of you even when things are well in our life. We don't want to be like the rich man that it's so hard to, to inherit the kingdom of God because he's got all that he needs and he doesn't depend on anything. We don't want to be like that. And so shake us now and just give us faith. And then lastly, Father, um, help us to see Jesus differently. It's not a, a market item that reflects on us. It's the only thing in life that really matters and we should want to jump on and grab hold of that with all the strength that we have. We should want to seek and knock and ask and look and search, knowing that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Let us not treat it like something we have to get away from because it's a fashion item. Father, help us to be true Christians, to be worthy of the name, to be changed and to to be able to love truly because we've resolved all the issues in the games that we play on this horizontal level with life. Um, Just... Yank us out of that so that we can live like strangers. We pray that in Christ's name.